Hello, welcome to Secure Talk, your trusted source of information on the latest threats, trends, tools, and technology related to cybersecurity and compliance. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Secure Talk. My name is Mark Schreiner, and I'll be your host for this episode of Secure Talk. Normally on Secure Talk, we talk with subject matter experts about people, processes, and technology related to cybersecurity or cryptocurrency. Today, we're going to go down a slightly different track. We're going to be talking with Brian Kuderna, who is a certified financial planner. Brian believes the tech space offers opportunities for passive income. And in his book, What Should I Do With My Money? Economic Insights to Build Wealth Amid Chaos, he gives the example of the growth in the cyber insurance market that was valued at $7.35 billion in 2020 and is expected to reach over $27 billion by 2026. We're going to be talking with Brian about how people can manage and preserve their wealth in a time when maintaining privacy and security is becoming increasingly difficult. And we'll talk about other related topics. But before we do that, let's say hi to Brian. Brian, how are you today? Hey, thanks for having me on the show, Mark. My pleasure. Whereabouts are you located? Uh, so I'm calling in out of Jersey. Uh, we're right in the Red Bank area. And um, that's where my, my practice, my financial advising practice is based out of the tri-state. Excellent, excellent. Well, tell me a little bit about your book. Yeah, definitely. So my book is called What Should I Do With My Money? Economic Insights to Build Wealth Amid Chaos. And um, I first wrote a book back in 2016 called Millennial Millionaire that was really like a crash course on personal finance, particularly for millennials and young professionals. This wasn't so much of a sequel in a way because we get much more into economics, which is really my passion. And so ultimately what I did in the book is I break down nine domains uh, that I think are the most important aspects of our economy and really look at the past, the present and the future of those and how that's affecting all of us as, as we try and build wealth and further, you know, our career and our family and, and grow our portfolio. Uh, and one of those, which I'm sure we'll get into is technology. Awesome. Well, I mean, if we just stick on the title for a second, you say to build wealth amid chaos. Are we referring to the pandemic? Are we referring to post-pandemic supply chain issues, recessions? What's the chaos? Yep. Yeah. So I, I love putting that amid chaos in the subtitle because I think it's actually evergreen. And if we look at any time frame in history, there's more than enough ammo out there for someone to say this is unprecedented or this is just such a crazy time to be alive. Um, and, and I think I really expose that throughout the book uh, through everything from the world wars up to, you know, current events that are unfolding like the pandemic. Uh, but I always say that chaos breeds opportunity. So as we look at every one of these events that seemingly shock the world, um, there is oftentimes a a good outcome from it. And we're, even if, uh, you know, immediately it may not be apparent, uh, we just have a way as humans of adapting, innovating, and then coming out the other side, maybe a little bit stronger. And um, that, so that chaos, while there's certainly a lot we can hone in on today, I think that that's applicable at all times. And I think it gives the reader kind of, uh, you know, a sense of hope that no matter how crazy things seem, in a way, it's almost more of the same, and you just got to have the tools so that you can weather the storm. Makes a lot of sense. Before we dig into the, um, you know, the opportunities in tech and also how the challenges with security and privacy affect our investment strategies, 
maybe you can just provide some basic principles when it comes to should you prioritize on wealth preservation or wealth growth or you know or should we be more concerned about protecting what we have or growing what we have sure sure so i pretty much have a four-step planning process that applies to everyone whether it's a young professional or you know a, a, a 65 year old person selling multiple businesses for you know tens of millions of dollars and the way that that process works is first is protection first all right so that's looking at a lot of things from our insurances our estate planning our contingency plans how are we going to insulate you know that family or that business from all the chaos that's going on out there so that we can kind of put them in this bubble if you will then the second thing we look at is liquidity all right so that's both you know cash is king how do we have a rainy day fund for when things hit the fan or how do we have sometimes a sunny day fund so that when opportunities arise, we can seize them? And then the third one is going to be debt management, which I talk a lot about in the book is that we're an economy built on debt. Uh, we always have been, and, and that goes from the government all the way down to the individual. So both the macro and the micro. So we need to use debt, but we have to use it in a smart fashion. Uh, and then the fourth thing is going to be growth. And, and that's what I think a lot of people mistake a financial advisor is just going to tell me which stock to pick. And while that is an aspect of financial planning, it's not financial planning by itself. And so that's why I follow that four-step process of protection, build liquidity, manage your debt, and then focus on growth. And maybe we can just kind of go through these in the, in the context of security whenever possible. Let's go with protect. You mentioned insurance, and obviously in your book, you you talked about the uh, the growth in the cybersecurity insurance market, but just for individuals, you know, when it comes to protecting what they have, w what are some like basic foundational steps? Sure, yeah, so if we really drill down to the basics, one of the first things I deal with, and particularly for a young professional, is actually disability insurance. And so that's one of the, the biggest threats, and, and it's actually the number one source of bankruptcy and home foreclosures. And that statistic never changes year to year. So, you know, disability is something where, A, we lose our income because we're no longer able to go to work and do, you know, practice our skill set. So that's obviously a catastrophe that we don't have a paycheck coming in anymore. And then that can be coupled with healthcare costs that we might be dealing with. So that's one of the first things is like, how do we guarantee the paycheck so that you can provide for yourself and for your family or your business? Uh, we talk about life insurance, you know, which I think garners a lot more attention. But if we look at statistically, an average, you know, young adult has about a 1% chance of passing away within their working years, which is very good. You know, we know that we're going to, most of us will live out our career. But if we look at disability, the average young adult has about a 25% chance of being out of work for two years or more due to disability. So we'll look at some of those just realities and say, okay, it's never going to be us. You know, we all think that, but let's just, you know, plan ahead. So God forbid it is, you know, we know that our financial plan can move forward. So are you saying one, one in four Americans has a period of disability that's one or two years long sometime in their lifetime? That's correct. And it's it's a stat that even when I say it aloud, I'm like, 
Really? And, and I always want to go back and almost fact check it. But if you look at the Social Security Administration, that's the statistic is that someone that's starting their career in their 20s has about a 25% chance of being out of work for two years or longer due to illness or injury. And that's uh, that's a that's amazing. And and for, you know, it's kind of scary because for the reasons that you just said, not only are you losing your income, but you're accruing these costs. And uh, in case anybody hasn't noticed, healthcare is not cheap in America. So <laughs> <laughs> no, it is not. And and that folds back into why I love talking about economics and why I enjoyed writing this book is, you know, money may not be the goal for everyone. And, and frankly, I don't think it should be. I think money is just one aspect of our well-being. But if we lose it and it goes away, that is like the one thing that can pump the brakes and make everything else kind of freeze. So that's why it's like whether you want to be in finance or you don't, it, it's I think the responsible thing is to have a plan, you know, have a system in place so that then you can say, all right, that's taken care of and I can focus on my passion or my business or whatever it is that I do with my life. Let's go to the next step in terms of liquidity. What are a couple things that people can do to make sure they they have access to cash? Yep. Yeah. And, and again, when we say like, uh, you know, what chaotic event are we referring to that you're seeing on front and center right now with what happened to Silicon Valley Bank and and a bit of a banking crisis that we're living through. That's obviously on a macro scale. But when we look at the micro scale and we say, well, what can I do with my money? That's where I go back to mostly for the average Joe out there having about six months of their expenses in cash, I think is a very good exercise. Um, so just running a budget, seeing what we spend on an average month, you know, six times that, that's a good buffer. In addition to that, we wanna look at the liquidity involved with all our different investment accounts. Uh, so that, you know, I always say your account's only as valuable as you're being able to use it when you need it. Uh, so that goes into, you know, looking at retirement plans versus non-qualified plans, uh, savings versus checking, CDs versus money markets and so forth. Uh, and then looking at other avenues, like you said, whether that's lines of credit or home equity loans and just, you know, if there's that opportunity or if there's a catastrophe, where can I turn? And you want to be in control. You almost want to be your own bank. I tell a lot of clients rather than what unfortunately a lot of Americans fall prey to is relying on a credit card. And if we go that route and we're not ready, that's where now we're the victim instead of, you know, the person that's on the offensive. Do you have any advice for what to do with your cash? Because I mean, with, with inflation at, I mean, what's, what's the official inflation rate right now? So right now, I think the latest number last month, we're, uh, we're pushing 7%. I don't have it oh. offhand, but I, I know we've been uh, trending like high sixes or seven and by CPI in most metrics. Yeah. So if I've got, you know, six months of cash uh, or expenses worth of cash sitting in my bank account, I'm going to be losing six or 7% a year on that. Is there a strategy that I can kind of use to make sure that, you know, I can have that liquidity, but also have that cash do something while it's sitting there? Yep. So that's that's kind of like that conundrum of like, can we have our cake and eat it too? And when people say, well, you know, cash is free, you know, it's guaranteed that it'll be there. Like you just alluded to, it's not really free because in most instances it is losing to inflation. 
um, most notably like in the, the past year where we're seeing hyperinflation. Uh, so with that said, it's I look at cash, frankly, as almost a necessary evil. And that's why I say we should have that six months. We should have maybe anything that we know we have a big obligation or expense in the next year or so. That's where it needs to be in cash. Yes, it's not getting a return, but it has value because we know that it's there and it's ready to go. But we don't want to go above and beyond that because then the scenario you played out where we're not keeping out up with inflation can become very real. So it's a necessary evil. We got to check that box. I always say having too much cash can be a problem, but having not enough can be a huge problem. So we need to kind of weigh that, that in finance, it's not just all science. You know, sometimes we have to just kind of make the best decisions with what's available. And, um, and then once we get out past, you know, two years or so, that's when we can start to entertain, all right, you know, what investment options are out there based on time horizon risk and so forth. And if you want to get into some of that, we can too. I think one of the best pieces of advice that I'd ever received in the context of finance was about 2007, a good friend of mine said, hey, you know, lines of credit are extremely uh, cheap right now. I said, I don't need a line of credit. What do you need a line of credit for? He goes, it's, it's access to money. Sign up for it. And if we remember what happened in 2008, and I had that line, and it, it, it actually, and, and I had to go through uh, an international move that I had to pre-fund and I was going to be reimbursed from the company that was employing me, but I had to pay initially a, a fair amount of money out of pocket. Just having access to that line of credit made things so much more easy. So that's some really good advice. In terms of going after actually in, in getting a line of credit, what are what are some tips? Because right now, a lot of banks, they cut down on like the home equity line of credits. They, they've made them a little bit more restrictive. Do you, I mean, do you, do you, do you have any suggestions? Yeah, so I think the, the biggest, thing, biggest thing is kind of keeping your finger on the pulse of the economy, like you alluded to in 07, going to get that HELOC, and then better to have it and not need it than, you know, the other way around. So I think you just want to keep yourself apprised of what my options are. That could be a home equity line. That could be a business line of credit. Uh, something that's been very popular the past several years is what's called a cash value line of credit. Uh, where instead, like a lot of folks that have, you know, money parked in whole life policies or cash value life insurance policies, they could perhaps take the loan from the insurance company, or they can go to banks and actually get a line of credit with that as collateral. You see that a lot in the business space with people using that type of leverage. You can get securities-based lines of credit, you know, on your portfolios. So there's a lot of avenues out there, but just like in all things, you know, when we rewind three years ago where the Fed is just pumping the economy with liquidity, then there's a lot of options. Then we fast forward to today where we say, hey, we need to kind of like go in reverse. And uh, there's there's just this too much out there. There's too much slush or froth and grabbing inflation. Now our options become a little bit more limited. And I think that's kind of the thing people need to realize is you always got to be prepared for that. You know, it's not always going to be the perfect day. And so going back to my book about building wealth amid chaos, we want to think, okay, if, if the bank pulls my line of credit or rates go up, you know, what's my next plan? And I think that's what a smart financial plan does is kind of bulletproof itself against as many foreseeable circumstances as possible. 
Makes a lot of sense. I love that scenario planning. You know, if this happens, what are my options? What's my fallback? Hey, and then in terms of debt management, what are, what are a couple of basic strategies? So I think there, um, and this is, I would say this is general advice. This is not specific advice, but uh, by and large, I think you just want to zero out your credit card every month, you know, and that might sound to a lot of your listeners like, well, duh, of course, but you know, that's a real struggle for a lot of folks out there. And when you're looking at the average credit card interest rate hovering around 20%, um, and, and over the past, you know, 13 years, you're getting, you know, peanuts on your cash in, in, in the bank, that just huge spread there is where credit card companies obviously can be profitable. So you want to use your credit card because it helps your FICO score and shows good credit history and there's rewards and all that stuff. But you don't want to be, like I said, kind of on the victim side of the equation where we have a revolving balance that we're paying that crazy interest on. So I think that's number one. Um, the other one, you know, practice smart leverage. Uh, traditionally, the best debt you will carry is secured debt, meaning there's an asset behind it, the most common of which is going to be a mortgage. So I usually tell people don't be in a rush to pay off the mortgage, especially if you have one of those older rates at three or 4%, that's like the best kind of leverage that you can have. So, you know, let that be there and, and use your money elsewhere and have wealth in motion as we call it. Um, so those are some general principles. And then I deal a lot, uh, I've written and spoke a lot on student loans, um, which I do think is a bit of a epidemic right now. Uh, and, and that is a combination of both how the debt is used and structured, but also with, um, frankly, a lot of young adults just saying, I don't really know what to do. I'm going to college and then graduating say, well, I don't really know what I want to do now, but I just added, you know, a hundred or $200,000 of debt to my balance sheet. And that's a problem that, uh, that I think we really need to hone in on. Are there any other options for paying for higher education? Yep. So I think it's it's all about planning ahead and knowing and thinking about and having these conversations, you know, with parents, with kids, you know, about like what what is what's the game plan here and what's the end game? And then does let's do a little cost benefit analysis and see if we can have these match up. Uh, and I talk a lot in my book about that. I think that there's certain things that need to be taught and need to be learned. If you want to go be an engineer, uh, you're probably going to have to go to school and a lot of school and really hone your skill at that. Uh, if you want to get into sales, um, you know, or, or you want to get into maybe some others that are more soft skills, uh, then maybe getting a lofty, expensive four-year degree, getting roped into the master's program right after, that might not add up immediately towards uh, economic value. And so I think that it's not so much just like, how do we manage the debt? It's where we want to look at that before it becomes the problem. And I think that's where you're seeing community colleges and things really start to boom because people are reevaluating that value of the diploma, uh, which I think needs to happen from time to time. And that's why I talk a lot about like the debt forgiveness and such going on right now. That's in my opinion, a bit of a bandaid on, on like a real severe bleed. So that uh, certainly will attract some votes and it sounds nice, but as you do more of that, I think it enables higher education just to 
raise a higher bill knowing that there's a bigger uh, you know, checkbook on the other side. So I, I don't think that that by itself is a solution either. Yeah, that's kind of a touchy topic. Um, you have people sure who've, who've paid for their education and then you have people who, you know, for a variety of reasons, took out a loan. It probably was out of necessity. But for those that already paid for it, and then you have the government come along and saying, oh, we're going to forgive those loans. And th- as yep. you alluded to, the the schools themselves, they're not lowering tuition. So you have the educational industrial complex or however you want to call it. It's interesting because I've had several people on this show that uh, are you know cybersecurity subject matter experts who have made it very clear that a college degree isn't a hard requirement. If you're passionate about the, t- the subject, there are many different ways for you to learn without actually going and getting a four-year degree, whether that's uh, on-the-job education you know, or on OJT in the military or whether that's just OJT in, in the private sector and, uh, and a lot of self-study. But there are uh, huge opportunities. In fact, I had a, a cybersecurity educator on recently and he was saying, you know, it's a nice to be able to check that box, but once you get your first job in the cybersecurity space, for a lot of the roles, uh, nobody's going to ask about your college education. They just want to know what your skill sets are. So that's something to keep in mind. Um, but back to th- yeah, and to that point, not to belabor the point, but I agree with you 100% there. And I think, you know, what's the worst thing that like a young professional saddled with college debt could hear when they step into their new job is forget what they taught you. Yeah. And, and I've heard that a thousand <laughs> times. And I'm like, imagine sitting there, like I just spent four years, tons of money to learn all this stuff that now I don't know if it's really applicable. And now I go into my real job and my boss is saying, forget what they taught you. We're going to show you kind of how we do things here. The reality of it, a lot of on the job training. And so it's, there needs to be a better connection there. Yeah. And one of the arguments is the cybersecurity space changes so rapidly that the universities sure. have a, have a tough time keeping up. In the the introduction to the show, I touched on the fact that you believe that the tech space offers many opportunities for passive income and also touched on the the example of cybersecurity insurance. Maybe you can talk about some growth strategies and opportunities in the context of tech and cybersecurity investments. Yeah, sure thing. So I think if, if we look at tech, you know, by and large, I think investors would define the tech space as growth as opposed to value. So that's a good way to start for just like an investor that's saying, well, what's out there? You have your your value stocks or your value funds, which are looking at the price to earnings, you know, ratio or multiple of, you know, typically that's a lower price to what their earnings are or their book value in some cases. And then growth looks initially as like, well, that's a very expensive or a very high price versus what the earnings or the value of that company are. And tech usually falls into that growth category, which means that people are almost in essence betting that yes, Amazon looks expensive, yes, Google looks expensive or Tesla or whatever it might've been, but we think that they have such a runway, such a potential there that they'll keep just catching up to that high price. And so I think that's kind of the first thing to realize when you look at you know, researching some of these different stocks or funds. With that said, if we go back to 2000, which was not all that long ago, 23 years ago, there was just a few companies in the NASDAQ 100, which were really like the 100 biggest tech companies out there. Just a few of them were listed in the S&P 500. 
right? Which is, you know, your 500 largest companies in the world. That's what most people quote as the stock market. Now, 23 years later, almost all of the NASDAQ 100 belongs to the S&P 500. So I think that just shows you right there, like how enormous and how um, all-encompassing technology has been become. And it, it shows you, obviously, as someone that was investing in tech in 2000 to where they are now is probably quite happy about that. But I think that tech is always leading the way. And so, uh, you know, it, it certainly hasn't had its day and it's just completely coming up with new innovations. And when you say, wow, that sounds like a great idea, that's got a lot of future to it, all of those are investable. Uh, and that's what I talk about in my book, everything from the company, uh, whether it's the Microsoft, the Facebook, or whatever the next one up is, to, you know, the people that are in that, to the companies that service that, whether it's the cybersecurity realms or uh, the banks or whoever it is that's a part of that company, and then all the way down to the parts. So as we develop these new technologies and microchips and just all these things that will almost sound like science fiction, they're all parts that go into all of that. And, and that's a whole another story that you're seeing now with us in China and Taiwan. And, you know, how do we actually get the raw materials that make all this fancy tech work? And so all of these parts of the chain are all investable. And I think that that's something we need to keep in mind. You just reminded me, I should have bought the NASDAQ 100 index fund in 2000, and uh, I'd probably be retired by now. <laughs> that's uh, that's amazing. Yeah. And in, 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 in between then and now, there have been several up and down cycles too with tech, especially with the dot-com explosion and all that. Yeah. But you know, th those who stayed the course have done quite well. What are some red flags to, to look out for when investing in tech? So I think you kind of just touched on it is that you're looking at volatility. So it, tech being, you know, the way that it is and being that it is in the growth sector, you know, that that's what it's most identifiable as. That's where you can see rapid gains, but you can also see rapid over evaluation or overvaluation, I should say. So, excuse me, that's where you can see, you know, the Amazons or the Teslas where people are like, oh, there's no way it's worth that much. It's not even turning a profit this year or something. And then you can see, you know, like happened in 2022 to Tesla in particular, and Amazon as well, lost half of its like market value. Uh, I think that's what you need to be ready to hang on for. And a lot of folks, they don't have the stomach for that, uh, where if they're looking at their portfolio and, and, you know, what Warren Buffett, you know, he said a lot of great things, obviously. He always said you want to be greedy when others are fearful, but then you want to be fearful when others are greedy. And so what happens is, you know, everyone can say, oh, if I bought Apple back when, I'd be set. But, you know, a lot of people will wait until it's, you know, at the forefront that everybody knows it's worth, you know, a fortune. And then they want to hop on board. And oftentimes that might be at a peak. And then if a 2022 happens where there's a re-evaluation of the company, um, that's where you can take a big loss. And if you hit the panic button, you can really get hurt. So I think just having the stomach for some of that volatility is where you can be a good investor in tech. Uh, if, if you don't have the stomach for that or you're one of those people that watches their portfolio every day, it can be a painful ride. Yeah, I love that Warren Buffett quote. It's funny because with most assets, everybody wants to buy low, sell high, right? And uh, with investments, for whatever reason, 
if things are trending down, people are afraid. But man, if if things are going up, everybody wants to jump on board, which obviously, you know, accelerates the the growth and then makes more people want to get in. It's kind of like that fear of missing out, the FOMO, you know, it's like, oh, I got to get in now. Um, yeah. But it's a, it's a very interesting psychology. We touched on it a couple of times, but haven't really dug into it, is you believe that there's some opportunities for passive income. Um, maybe you can talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so there's a lot of different ways to generate passive income. And I think that's where ultimately you become, quote unquote, financially independent, where you can work and live and do the things you want to do and know that you have a portfolio behind you uh, that can carry the load. And that could be through real estate. Obviously, a lot of folks will use real estate and rental properties and things like that for passive income. You can use fixed income. In technology, um, you know, there, there's a number of ways to go about it. You know, some tech stocks can pay dividends and so forth that, uh, you know, can provide passive income. But I think in, tech, in the tech space, you're usually seeing it more out of growth. Um, so you're actually seeing like the market value of your portfolio grow. Uh, and, and that's where it can be passive income in the sense that, all right, I'm building a really large portfolio that maybe down the line I can start to spend down or have carry some of the uh, weight here uh, based on what my expenses are in the future. Um, so I think that's that's maybe where parlay is over to passive income. Okay. Well, assuming that we've done our work to protect our, our assets, <clears throat> maintain liquidity, optimize our debt management strategies, and we have some investments allocated to growth. Where does protection against cybercrime and protecting our data, protecting our information, our privacy, where does that fall into the picture? Sure. Yep. And uh, and I know that's the crux of your show. And, um, you know, where I really fit that in my book, if we go back to my book again, what should I do with my money? I, there's nine domains that I talk about here that are pretty wide ranging from entitlements, education, you know, religion, you know, cover a lot of ground, but one is tech. And the reason I had to pick that, I remember watching 60 Minutes and the Fed chairman, Jerome Powell was on 60 Minutes and he said, the number one threat to America's economy today is cyber. All right. This was a, a, a few years back. Maybe in my opinion, he possibly should have been thinking about inflation back then but he said it was cyber and i think this is before the pandemic yes yeah okay. well no it was actually like uh i think this was in 2021 he said that so it was actually okay. like right it was after while we were in the pandemic but before inflation really took off okay and he said that the number one threat is cyber and uh and that gave me pause because i was like you know i've always kind of thought that that there's a lot of opportunity but also threat and then that the like the number one finance guru arguably in the world pointed to cyber i think that was like wow like th this is something that deserves a lot of attention and you know people will bash him like oh you should have been attacking inflation he was so behind the game which i kind of agree with to an extent i think if we look at the the big picture he's spot on that that the the cyber world does have like this enormous playground um for bad actors and for just frankly, just mistakes that that people and companies can make. So going back to where I fit it in my book, um, there's four applications I reference in technology. One is mind persuasion. And so that's how we're manipulating people's minds through everything from algorithmic guided marketing, 
Um, so you're not just seeing a billboard on a highway. Now you're actually getting those ads right on your, your TikTok or your Facebook that are almost like reading your mind, it feels like. Uh, so that's one thing that, again, not necessarily a threat, but if it falls in the wrong hands and they know that they can, you know, have that sway over, uh, you know, an influential person, that's one thing. The other I call computer mind manipulation, which is AI, of course. And now you're seeing it with chat GPT and um, some of these things where it's like, all right, <clears throat> now not only are we persuading our own mind to an extent, but we're trying to guide, you know, how these computers and these robots are thinking. And then what happens when these kind of black boxes get out of control and we can't understand like how they're coming to a certain conclusion you know, within their decision-making as AI. Uh, so you have mind persuasion, computer mind manipulation. Then the other two that I reference are anonymity, uh, where it's harder and harder for us to stay private. You know, who out there hasn't had their, <clears throat> their identity, quote unquote, stolen to an extent because of some hack. But at the same token, the criminals are having an easier, easier time of hiding. You know, so that's kind of like this paradox we have. And then the fourth part is tech parts. And so that's what I talk a lot about where China is certainly not hiding at all the fact that they, you know, with their Silk Road 2.0 and all these initiatives, they wanna try and monopolize these rare materials that go into so much of our technology, uh, which I think is gonna be very, very hard for them to do, but if they could pull that off, uh, it's frightening. And so those four things there, I think that's stuff that, you know, both from the macro and the micro, we need to look at those four applications and say, how are we protecting ourselves? Uh, which we can get into. I know those are big, but I think those are kind of the elephants in the room. Yeah, and, and they're all scary topics that we should all be aware of. But uh, at a practical level, what can individuals or, you know, businesses do to either protect against those scenarios or basically protect their their, their privacy and their assets? Sure. Yep. So I'll kind of attack that two ways from the micro level. Uh, some of it's the common sense of, you know, using different passwords, complicated passwords and doing two factor authentication. So I know it's annoying. I do it a, a million times a day and then I got to check the phone and put in the passcode and so forth. But that's been proven to really slow down, um, you know, how people can kind of hack and get into your accounts. So two-factor authentication is key, updating the passwords and so forth. Um, the other thing too is uh, just using a common sense and checking your accounts. I mean, I'm obviously in the financial world, but I think you ought to be checking your bank accounts and your portfolios on a fairly regular basis, as well as your credit score. Um, I, I can't tell you how many people I've met that they had their identity stolen and then when their identity got stolen, someone was using their credit card or opened a new account in their name. And then literally months went by with this being totally unchecked. And then, oh, you know, I'm going to buy a new car and they ran my credit score and it's 200 points lower than I thought it was. And they're like, what the heck? That doesn't make any sense. And then they go and look and they find this account that they're like, I have no idea what that is. And well, guess what? You know, six months ago, uh, you know, somebody got a hold of your credit card or whatever it may have been. So scenarios like that, where if we can just catch it before it becomes a problem, um, that just goes back to, you know, trying to keep eyes on on what's important to you so that one, it's protected up front. But if somebody does kind of penetrate the gates, 
we can catch it before they just run wild in there. Um, so those are a couple ones. Um, email's huge. I could get into all that. But I think the other thing too is <clears throat> the cybersecurity industry, uh, insurance industry is really growing quickly. And those are things that I think small businesses and households can take advantage of just to add another layer of protection, um, not unlike you would with your homeowners or auto insurance, uh, so that if you do get hacked, um, a number of these programs out there say, you know, we'll immediately uh, reimburse you up to a million dollars of damages, and then we'll go chase down the money in the criminal um, rather than you having to wait six months before hopefully they find out where that money went. Uh, so those are things that that I think the average Joe out there can do. Now, from like a, a macro standpoint, I think that there needs to be a public-private partnership of sorts, kind of like you see in healthcare, because I think just to, to expect some guy that's opening up his widget store down the street with five employees to be able to um, have all the cybersecurity protocols in place would just be restrictive to him operating as an entrepreneur. So I think there needs to be some way that the government can say, okay, just like you're going into a parking garage and you know your car is safe, that, okay, you're starting a business, you maybe pay a premium into whatever it is, and, and we know that you're getting at least a baseline protection uh, against what's out there. Yeah, you touched on a lot of stuff there, and and everything makes a lot of sense. I, I'd just like to say that when it comes to the, your credit scores and reports, one of the best strategies, obviously, is to just freeze your account when you're not using it, right? And the the three big reporting agencies, what are they? It's Equifax. What are the other two? Um, Equifax, Experian, and uh, I'm drawing a blank on the third uh, one. That's all right. These days, they make it extremely easy to freeze your reports. It used to be on or off, but now you can say, hey, I want to turn it on for, and then just say like 48 hours. And, and then it just automatically, then after 48 hours, it goes back to the froze or freeze mode, which is very convenient. The example you gave with the public-private partnership, I think is is really important because one, if if we're asking people to do more and more things online, we need to be able to trust what we're doing online, right? Um, it's kind of like credit cards, right? When they first came out, people were like, I don't know, man, because like, what if what if I lose this card, right? Well, the credit yeah. card companies came up and said if your card is used in a fraudulent manner, we're going to reimburse you for that, right? I mean, you're not going to be held liable, which is interesting because when I when I was in Singapore, the the laws were much, much less protective of the consumer. So for example, as a consumer at the time, I think it was up to $10,000 that you could be held liable for, which is kind of, you know, kind of scary if you think about it, right? You lose your card, your card gets stolen and you could be on the hook for that amount. I ended up not getting like a Visa or MasterCard, end up with an Amex when I was in Singapore, just because they had complete protection. So it would be nice here if we have that same kind of protection for small business owners, consumers, or even larger larger organizations. And whether that's funded by the uh, the service providers or in partnership with the government, I think it's something that we do need to do. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And um, and that the third one was TransUnion. That just came to mind. That Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> no, that, it's that, funny that, because whenever I whenever I unfreeze my accounts, I always remember uh, Equifax because they had the huge hack. And I'm sure the other ones have as well. But then I have to Google uh, credit reporting agencies and then they get the yeah, right. other two. Brian, you also have your own podcast, right? Yeah, it's called The Kaderna Podcast. And uh, I always say we discuss wealth in the original meaning of a state of well-being. 
And so uh, it's a fun podcast. We go over economics, business, a lot of this, but then also, um, you know, everything from having pro athletes to authors and uh, anybody that can lead a healthy and wealthy lifestyle. That's uh, the goal of my show. That's awesome. And how long have you been doing that podcast? Yeah, so we've had the podcast since 2020. So we're uh, in year, I guess, three years now going on year four. And do you do like one episode a week or a month or what kind of schedule are you on? Yeah, so I would say it's about once every other week on average. And some of the shows are just me and I might be talking about, you know, my realm of economics and personal finance. And then we also have a really a lot of really cool guests on the show, too, um, that can give their take on whatever's out there. So uh, we kind of spice it up time to time. And if somebody wanted to get a copy of your book, What Should I Do With My Money? Economic Insights to Build Wealth Amid Chaos. What's the best place to do that? Yeah, so it's available in paperback, Kindle, and audiobook. Uh, wherever books are sold, you can get it on Amazon, of course, or any Barnes & Noble, Walmart, um, you name it, it's out there. And uh, check it out. You can check me out at just my name, Brian Kaderna, Brian with a Y, briankaderna.com, and find out a lot about the book and everything there as well. Awesome. I will put some links in the show notes. Hey, Brian, really enjoyed this conversation. What you're doing is super, super important. It's like I said, we typically talk about people process related to cybersecurity, but I think that anybody's concerned about security. Uh, one of the key aspects is protecting your, your assets and, and then having strategies to maintain liquidity, managing debt, and then growing your assets. But while you're doing all that, you have to do it in a way that uh, is safe and protects your data, your information. So uh, what you're doing is super important. Thanks so much for being on the show. Yeah, Mark, thanks for having me and um, keep in touch. Hello, welcome to Secure Talk, your trusted source of information on the latest threats, trends, tools, and technology related to cybersecurity and compliance.